All right. Thank you very much. Okay, so this evening we have the ambitious plan of actually finishing Chapter 4. I know it's kind of crazy. Or Chapter 3. Sorry, guys. Chapter 4. I'm going to be getting way ahead of myself. It's Class 4. This is our fourth class session on Chapter 3. I want to get through Chapter 3 in four class sessions. So I want to try to get all the way through the end of of the meeting with the elves. Uh, uh, that's what we're, uh, that's the goal here for today. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, but okay. All right. So, uh, tonight's class is titled tales of that sort. You remember, this is a quotation from Sam talking about how he does love tales of that sort. Elves, sir, right? Any stories about elves? Well, now Sam, of course, uh, I'm titling the class Tales of That Sort to commemorate the fact that Sam now finally finds himself in a tale of that sort. Uh, Now, finally, The Fellowship of the Ring has become one of those elf stories that Sam would uh, uh, would, uh, love so much and now gets to participate in. So, um, uh, this is <laughs> Tony's teasing me. He thinks that only four weeks in chapter three is really entirely too much, and that I'm now accelerating into breakneck speed. But we'll see, Tony. We'll see how it goes. So, um, uh, I, there, I do have one uh, question from the discussion board that I wanted to bring up tonight, but it was actually about some of the things that uh, it's fr- not a cat. It's uh, your post, and uh, but some of the things are probably going to be answered over the course of our discussion today. So I've actually put it at the end. So if I do get to the end, we'll talk about it then. If not, we'll talk about it at the beginning of next time. So that's what we're going to do. So let's jump straight into where we left off last time. And where we left off last time is one of the songs, which obviously we're not going to skip. Because, of course, if there is one thing that, uh, you know, I have tried to be consistent in emphasizing throughout my career as a Tolkien teacher, it is don't skip the poems. Poems are super important. Uh, So we're we're going to start off with the Hobbit walking song. Uh, so let's let's look at each of the three stanzas of the Hobbit walking song in turn. First, a little context there at the beginning. With most hobbits, it is a supper song or a bed song. But these hobbits hummed a walking song, though not, of course, without any mention of supper and bed. Bilbo Baggins had made the words to a tune that was as old as the hills and taught it to Frodo as they walked in the lanes of the water valley and talked about adventure. Um, okay, so the, 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 the three of them start to sing a song together as hobbits do. So this is a this is a common thing. You'll often find hobbits walking around singing songs together, apparently. That's what we're told. Um, and interesting that most of the time they'll be singing a supper song or a bed song. Uh, these are really interesting genres. Um, uh, bed songs in particular. I love the idea of a bed song. Uh, I don't know about you, but I often feel like singing a bed song uh, <laughs> at various points. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it, this is great. So notice first the distinction that the narrator makes. Right, there's something different about them. So it's 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 late, right? But instead of heading for home, thinking about end of destination type things, right? Thinking about summer, supper or bed. They're thinking about walking. So notice on the one hand how this maps onto the, like, took Baggins thing, right? Um, supper song and bed song. That's, a uh, you know, kettle uh, on the hearth just beginning to sing kind of, uh, kind of world, right? That they would sing about. A walking song is, of course, an adventure song. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's about... 
Well, again, it's not about high adventure necessarily. I mean, notice that uh, Bilbo Baggins made the, 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 the song, made the words, and taught it to Frodo as they walked in the lanes of the Water Valley and talked about adventure. So they're talking about adventure. But, of course, the walking that they're doing is quite tame. Um, the lanes of the Water Valley, so in other words, right around, you know, the little river that goes by the foot of the hill. Um, so these are very tame walks that they're on. These are not big cross-country jaunts that they're doing, or cross-shire jaunts even. Um, but uh, uh, but still, they're at least talking about adventure. Uh, so, all right, so let's read stanza one of the adventure song. Upon the hearth the fire is red, beneath the roof there is a bed, but not yet weary are our feet, still round the corner we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass, hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by. Okay, first of all, notice the structure of the poem. It's always good to pay attention to the shape and sound uh, of the poetry because Tolkien is always thinking about the shape and sound of the poetry. And the first thing that we see uh, is that this is in a very similar meter and scheme to uh, The Road Goes Ever On and On. Upon the hearth the fire is red, beneath the roof there is a bed. The first thing to notice when you're listening to the sound and shape of the poetic lines in Tolkien's songs is to try to hear how many beats there are in a line, right? Um, you know, you don't have to get into, like, the details, you know, like your English teacher might have made you once do, like mapping out stressed and unstressed syllables in a line, and sometimes you can get misled by that anyway. But the important thing is the beat, right? What's the beat? How many beats per line? Because how many beats per line determines the overall sort of sound shape of the poem itself. And this one is very regular. Four beats per line. Upon the hearth the fire is red, beneath the roof there is a bed. But not yet weary are our feet, still round the corner we may meet. Okay. So, exactly, Aragorn, iambic tetrameter. Um, So, once you establish the number of beats, four, which means it's tetrameter, um, then what is the pattern? Right? What is the sound pattern? And it's simple. Iams. Unstressed, stressed. Bum, 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 and it's fairly regular, right? This meter, iambic tetrameter, really common, and in fact, as we will notice, this is really, really common for Hobbit songs. Most of the Hobbit poetry is in this meter. In fact, when I, I teach a, a course at Signum uh, called Tolkien's Poetry, where we read almost all of Tolkien's short poetry that he wrote uh, from the, the teens, you know, when he was barely, when he was barely 20, um, all the way through till the, to the poetry that he was writing and rewriting when he was 70 years old. Um, so we're, in, in looking at all those things, we, uh, we, we, we swiftly named this meter because, of course, looking at all the poetry in The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings is one of the things we did as well. Um, we called this meter Hobbit meter uh, because th- it's very it's, it's, it's very noticeable. Iambic tetrameter is a very, very common. It's not, not every single one, um, but it's very, it's very common. Um, now, uh, 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 Karika, exactly. The next thing to notice is the rhyme and, again, the shape of the rhyme. And this is very simple. Again, just rhyming couplets, right? Every, uh, every pair of lines rhymes, and the rhymes are... Very simple, right? Very, very, very simple rhymes. Simple, one-syllable rhymes. And not just one-syllable rhymes, but really basic rhymes. Simple words, right? Red, bed, feet, meat, stone, alone, grass, pass, sky, by, right? Um, nothing complicated, nothing, uh, 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 nothing too sort of ornate and, and, and dense. 
it's got a very simple feel to it, right? Very bouncy, very repetitive, which of course you would expect for a walking song, right? Notice how pro- you would expect a very regular meter for a walking song because you can sing it to the tramp of your feet as you walk. That's what they're doing, right? Remember, the three of them are walking abreast and they're, they're, they're walking in stride, right, to keep up their spirits. And so you want a very regular beat, a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass, right? Something nice and steady. Um, not quite like a marching song exactly, but um, but it's a walking song. Um, okay, now let's look at the substance of it, right? How, there are three stanzas. How many lines per stanza? How many lines do we have here? Two, four, six, eight, ten, right? Okay, so that's interesting. Um, look at the punctuation then, also. Notice that the first five or first uh, uh, three couplets, right? The first six lines are one sentence, which is interesting, right? Uh, it's one thing that a lot of times people kind of can forget about when reading poetry, that most of the time, uh, grammar applies, right? So in trying to figure out what a poem is saying, first, the first thing you have to do is just figure out like literally what do the lines, other lines, before you start getting into like, what does the imagery suggest and all that kind of thing, right? Before you start doing touchy-feely English teacher stuff to it, uh, first is understand like, what is the sentence saying, right? What is the subject? What is the verb of the sentence? So we have one sentence there uh, from line one through line six. What is it about, right? So let's notice the shape of it. We start with, a you know, upon the hearth, the fire is red. Beneath the roof, there is a bed, right? These are simple statements, but they're subordinate clauses, right? Um, but not yet weary are our feet. Still round the corner, we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen, but we alone. So what's the central idea? What is the subject and verb of the sentence? Not yet weary are our feet. That's the central idea, Right. So while these statements, these first statements are true, right, there, there may be a red fire on the hearth and there may be a bed beneath a roof, right? But our feet aren't weary, right? That's the central idea of this first sentence. And why are our feet not weary? Because around the corner, we may meet a sudden tree or a standing stone that none have seen, but we alone. Right. So the 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 purpose, right, the 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 theme of the song and again, the song that Bilbo made when he and Frodo were walking and talking about adventure is about discovery. Right. A sudden tree. I love that phrase. A sudden tree. Suddenly a tree. Right. Suddenness and trees are usually not two things that you would associate with, but uh, with each other. Right. Trees rarely do anything suddenly. Uh, but of course, when you're walking down a path, you can suddenly come around the corner and, and find a tree. Like a tree may, may hove into view or you can come around a corner and boom, there's a tree, right? A really cool and interesting tree to see. So notice like the kind of adventure that they're describing here in this first stanza is super tame, right? There might be a cool tree, right? Or a standing stone, like that's awesome, Right, you never know about old standing stones. You, you might find some kind of ruin or evidence of some kind of old relic or whatever. Right, that would be really cool. Right, that none have seen but we alone. Right, we might that 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 sense of secrecy. Right, not not uh, in the sense of wanting to keep it from somebody, but there, but in the sense of being an explorer. 
right? You might find something cool and interesting that nobody else knows about, right? Uh, yeah, keep it uh, keep it going, right? <laughs> Milthalio and Erokeb are thinking, right? Of course, you know, unless uh, unless the tree happens to be an ant, especially quick beam, right? Who might be quite sudden, of course. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, yes, good. Uh, Irindus points out um, they will, of course, come across some very significant standing stones in the Barrow Downs and some quite sudden trees later on in their in their journey. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. No, there's uh, there's a certain amount of uh, foreshadowing there, right, of adventures that they're going to have. But notice this is like the super tame version. Right, and we're not talking about the Barrow Downs. We're not, you know, we're not talking like the Standing Stone that you might see is not like something which might portend uh, horrible Barrow Whites right pouncing on you. Um, and the Sudden Tree is not something that's actually going to reach out and grab you. It's just you know a cool thing that you see. Right. So again, so this first sentence we have the acknowledgement of the coziness of home. Right. But the deliberate turning of your face away from that. Our feet aren't weary yet. The fire and the bed, that's great, right? But we're not ready for them yet. Because, hey, there's, there's sudden trees and there are standing stones to discover, right? Now the next, the, the, the last four lines. Tree and flower and leaf and grass. Let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky. Pass them by, pass them by. Um, now, notice how this right where the grammatical break in the stanza is, that is where the first sentence ends and the second sentence begins, there's also a change in the sound. Do you notice how the sound changes? Listen to how the rhythm changes. Still round the corner we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by. Do you hear the difference? There's a shift. It's a small shift, right? But there's a noticeable shift, I think. Yeah, and oh, Matt, I absolutely agree that there's a lot of very active foreshadowing in this in this poem. Absolutely. Do you hear the Do you hear the shift in the sound? The meter doesn't change. The meter is still fundamentally iambic tetrameter. But it sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by. Here, the, Listen to the beginning of the lines. What do you notice about the beginning of the lines? The sound of it again. Not the words themselves. This is something you can do even if you didn't understand English, something you could get. Notice how all of those last four lines start the line with a stressed syllable, which the other doesn't. Still round the corner, bum bum, a sudden tree, that none, right? Unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, which is the iambic shape, right? Each of those first lines of the last four, uh, first syllables of the last four lines is stressed. Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass. Let them pass. Hill and water under sky. Pass them by. Pass them by. It, uh, it, it doesn't fundamentally change the shape of the line, but it changes the feel of those lines. And especially doing that four times in a row, 
it gives those four lines a different feel. They're already separated grammatically. And they're separated in spirit, too. The first six lines are a regular sentence, right? These are exclamations, right? Notice there's, it's, it's not doing normal grammar here. The pattern in those last four lines is the, 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 the so just taking that last, those last four lines together, the first is a list of things, right? Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass, right? As if they're noticing things that they're walking past, right? But we're not going to stop. We're going to, we're going to keep going, right? Let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by, right? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, JJ48 says, if you didn't know English, how would you know which ones were supposed to be stressed and which unstressed? It would be hard. It would be hard. It's one of the things... Of course, the poetry and some of the subtleties of the poetic meters and things are exactly one of the... You just can't translate it. And it's one of the things that's lost in translation. It's why it's very difficult. Um, Tolkien, of course, is available in many very good translations around the world and languages around the world. But it's there's a lot that you lose from the English if uh, you're reading it in translation or if you're not really familiar with the English. It's just... I, that's just kind of the way it is. As, as with any work of great genius written in a language doing it in translation or if you're not really familiar with that language there's always going to be stuff uh that you're going to miss um yeah yeah good tony i agree it does sound like the way it's set up is as if those first six lines are the verse and the last four lines of the chorus that is exactly the feel that it does give you and notice the sort of theme of that last of the of the chorus there of those last four lines is passing by things, right? Not ignoring things necessarily, but not pausing, carrying on, keeping going uh, with uh, with the walk. Okay. Let's keep, speaking of keeping going, uh, uh, you know, word in line and <laughs> and stanza, let them pass, let them pass. Let's go, let's, let's, let's go. All right. Still round the corner, there may wait a new road or a secret gate, and though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Apple, thorn, and nut, and slow, let them go, let them go. Sand and stone and pool and dell, fare you well, fare you well. Same shape, right? Uh... Same overall structure, same differences in sound, right? So we've got the first six lines, which form one sentence, and the last four lines, which sound like a chorus, the same shift from a regular iambic pattern to a, to a moderated iambic pattern with the, with the strong syllable at the, at the beginning of the line, right? So that same, that same verse and chorus effect, right? Um, so now let's look at that first sentence again. Again, what's the action? What's the subject and verb? of this sentence. Still round the corner, there may wait a new road or a secret gate. So here, notice the subject is uh, uh, the road or a gate may wait around the corner, right? And though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. So, the first two lines, right, <clears throat> which gives us the subject and verb of the sentence, 
um, it seems to be a similar theme to the first one, right? The first stanza, the first verse, as it were, right? That is, keep walking because you never know what's going to be around the corner, right? There might be a new road or a secret gate like the sudden tree or the standing stone, right? Uh, the secret gate begins to be uh, even now, notice that the two things that these have in common, right? Um, sudden tree or the standing stone. The standing stone would be man-made or hobbit-made or elf-made or something, right? It'd be artificial, right? And yet it's still a relic, right? Presumably the standing stone would not be like inactive service, right? Um, whereas the new road or a secret gate uh, is something a little bit sort of more contempt, less kind of part of the landscape and more... Um, you know, coming upon an adventure, uh, an inter, you know, a, a more interactive adventure. I guess I want to say, if you see what I mean by that. Um, but it's not just that, right? Though we pass them by today, acknowledging we can't see everything, we can't go everywhere, right? Um, the scope of our walking adventure is limited today, but who knows tomorrow? we might come this way again and take the path that we've never taken. And uh, Sarah, I agree, Sarah Lagarde points out that the, the stanza suddenly then leaps uh, into mythology, right? Um, uh, to take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Um, Ambrosius Aurelianus asks, uh, do the references to the paths of the moon and sun here have any connection to the mythology of the sun and moon in the Silmarillion? I, it's possible, but I actually don't think so. Um, in fact, I think I recognize where that comes from by sheer coincidence, by chance, if chance you call it. Um, as I have been... Um, I, I, I posted about this on my social media. I'm doing a... a uh, I started this year, instead of doing my normal thing, which was just to read the Silmarillion, the Lord of the Rings, and the Hobbit, or not in that order, uh, Silmarillion, the Hobbit, and the Lord of the Rings, usually, um, at the beginning, you know, starting in January, like I do every year, I decided this year I wanted to be a little bit more ambitious, so I'm starting a full chronological reread of the Tolkien corpus. Um, you know, kind of not really, really strictly. I don't have time to make up the kind of intricate spreadsheet I would need to intersperse every short poem and everything in there, but um, but just basically kind of by published book, essentially. Um, so uh, I started with Cooler Vaux and then went to Book of Lost Tales 1 and 2, and I'm now... Uh, I've just started Roverandum. So today was my first day reading Roverandum, and today he talked about this, uh, 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 Ambrosius. Um... The, it, there's a, a line in the first chapter of Roverandum that describes the path that the moon makes when you're at the seaside, right? And you're looking across the ocean at the moon as the moon is low on the horizon, and you can see the path. Uh, and he, he references the fact that uh, those who know how to travel that path uh, can, can take it uh, to go to mysterious and magical places. And I think that that's the kind of thing that he has in mind, which doesn't really seem to me to totally fit... Um, to totally fit into the uh, um, the mythology of the sun and moon in the Silmarillion, exactly. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that idea of the mysterious and magical road to adventure, um, road in a broad sense to fairy, right? Uh, the capital F A E R I E, the magical land in the West, 
that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, is this? Uh, it seems to me even almost more of a, a reference to uh, to the Lost Road. Uh, that is to say, to the not not the book, the Lost Road, to the um, the lost the the straight path, right? That goes to Valinor. Um, yeah, and um, uh, uh, little little uh, foreshadowing, Ambrose. Just uh, uh, really honest. Uh, the um, I just can call you King Arthur from now on because that's so much easier to say. Um, our Lotro field trip this evening is also going to be Rover Random themed just by chance um but uh okay anyway uh good all right so let's keep going all right home is behind the world ahead and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight then world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed mist and twilight cloud and shade away shall fade away shall fade fire and lamp and meat and bread and then to bed and then to bed now this is a wonderful stanza the third stanza to this is really the kicker Right, and the wonderful thing about this poem is that, or this stanza rather, is that this stanza is like two completely different stanzas, depending on the point of view in which you look at it. Right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, sorry, I missed that, Cecilia. That's a great comment. Cecilia Lee had just pointed out that the the the, the chorus at the end uh, sounds almost like a a, 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 a chant and response. Uh, I, I agree. I think it could even be done that way, right? You know, that one person calls out the things, you know, uh, 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 um, apple, thorn, and nut, and slow, and then the other one says, let them go, let them go, right? It does sound very much like that. Um, uh, she says, as if one person makes a suggestion of things they could see or examine, should we look at these things? And the group responds, no, on to bigger and better things. Um, I love that. I think that's great. Um yeah, cool. So, okay. Um, uh, good. Okay. Um, so, so thinking about the applicability of this stanza first, thinking about this stanza as sung by Uncle Bilbo, uh, walking about the Shire with Frodo, right? That is to say, the applicability of this, um, um, the the applicability of this stanza is so powerful um, that is the applicable the applicability to Frodo's current situation is so strong that it's hard to ignore it right it's as if Bilbo had made it with like Frodo's dangerous trek across the Shire running from Black Riders in mind right but I think it 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 becomes even cooler when we recognize no that's not what it means right that's not what it meant to Bilbo that's not what he had in mind when he wrote it. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night. What does he mean by that, through shadows to the edge of night, right? Until the stars are all alight. See, it's the fourth line that gives it away. Now, no, first of all, did you notice the change? Notice what's different? What's different about this, the, this, the, the third stanza? 
It's a subtle thing. But two sentences, right? Two sentences in the verse. Right? The first four lines are one sentence, and the fifth and sixth lines are a second sentence, right? That's a different shape than we've seen so far. Um, so looking at that first sentence, right? The last line is what gives it away. There are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night. Like, and you're going to be treading a dark road, right? To the edge of night itself. Um, no, he's just talking about literal night until the stars are all alight, right? So, yeah, there, there are many... So we're on a really long walk, right? We're walking throughout the afternoon. Uh, uh, the shadows are going to be growing, right, and lengthening throughout the day as it comes to evening. Uh, and we're going to come to the very edge of night, and we're, but and then all the stars are going to come out, and we're still going to be walking. That's all he's talking about, right? That's what Uncle Bilbo is talking about when he makes this song. Um, the world ahead. Remember Bilbo's comments that Frodo quotes... Right about the uh, about the road, right having its um, having its its uh, its wellspring, right at every doorstep and uh, every 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 path is its tributary, right. Um, so yeah, that's it, it, you know when you're out walking, the whole world is ahead of you, right. There are many paths to tread, and and you know you can walk and you can explore. Uh, so it's about the length of time, right? Through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. And that's even cooler, right? Everybody, you know, they all like walking at night, Frodo says uh, at the beginning, right? Because, of course, they've all been trained by Bilbo, right? So then what happens, right? After you're walking out at night, then world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed. I love the word wander there, right? Not just will return, not will head straight back. We're going to wander back to home. So we're going to turn... Right, so that the world is now behind us and home is ahead. Notice that the walk, of course, because it's Bilbo's song, has a there and back again shape, right? Um. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, the 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 it, it, we're gonna want we're not again, we're not gonna make a beeline for home, but we're gonna wander back to home in bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade. Notice the emphasis now is not on the things that they pass, the kinds of tree or, you know, leaf and grass and all that stuff. Right now it's atmospheric conditions, right? Because it's, you know, through the shadows to the edge of night and the stars and everything. Um, Those things shall fade away. The mist and the twilight and the cloud and the shade, right? Why are they fading away now instead of passing by? Because now they're being supplanted because home is behind and uh, the world is behind and and home is ahead. Right, and they're wandering back to home in bed, which is why then we get that final turn at the end of the final chorus. Fire and lamp and meat and bed and bread and then to bed and then to bed. Right? For the last time we don't dismiss the final thing. Right? No away shall fade, no pass them by, right? And then to bed and then to bed. Um Yeah, so um Right, and then Sarah uh, as Pippin pipes in, and now to bed, right? Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. My my apologies. Uh, got carried away with my poem there. Um, okay. So, um, what? Uh, now, but but anyway. So that's that's just thinking about Bilbo's version of the story, right? The um, uh, the the application though, right? Frodo singing it in this context, very different, right? Um, now. Think about it from Frodo's point of view. Home is behind and the world ahead. Not just figuratively, not just imaginatively, but quite literally. He is leaving his home behind forever and heading out into the world, right? And there are many paths. He doesn't know 
where he's going. He doesn't know what his ultimate destination is going to be. Gandalf has said it may be his uh, task to seek the cracks of doom, or that task may be for others. You know, they don't know, right? So who knows which paths he's going to end up treading when he's out there. Um, But it's almost certainly going to be through shadows to the edge of night, right? He's already experiencing the shadows. He's already winding his way through shadows, right? The shadows are chasing him now, um, and his journey is indeed going to take him to the edge of night and beyond. Um, Until the stars are all alight, then in this context, especially thinking ahead to where we're going to go soon, that is the elves' song, that would seem to me to be a message of hope under the circumstances. Um, that the, that even when you are go to the edge of night and beyond, the stars will still be alight. And then there's that final message of hope about the idea of... Because Bilbo's back-again lines are still there, right? World behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed. Um, the fading... Right, the reference to fading, away shall fade, away shall fade. Fading seems a very conspicuous thing um, to talk about, right? Again, for Frodo to be singing this while black riders are chasing him, right? While he's carrying the ring of power, um, you know, talking about things fading away is kind of a big deal, right? Um, and, uh, but notice what, according to the song, is fading away. Mist and twilight cloud and shade, uh, all those dark and darkening things, those things will all fade away. In other words, it seems to emphasize the hopeful ending of the song about the stars being, the stars lighting up and turning back from the world and returning out of exile to home, wandering back eventually to home and bed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Right, and then just the final confirmation of Hobbit comfort. Um, Notice, several of you, both in the Twitch chat and in Discord, have been wanting me to comment on the lifting of these lines uh, for Pippin's song uh, in Denethor's Hall in the film. I don't want to get too distracted with that, because of course the way that they place that song in an utterly different context to this changes it, but you'll notice the applicability is similar. The reason that they've latched upon um, uh, these lines, right? Um, Well, at least the first four lines of the song, right? Of this stanza, anyway. And then they change it, right? Uh, Notice they do not. uh, Pippin does not end that song with then world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed, right? Uh, That's that's not uh, where that song, it ends with fading, right? But it's not darkness fading. Um, uh, how does that line go? The other, uh, uh, right, three shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all light, mist and, uh, and shadow, cloud and shade. Uh, but then the final line, what's the final line in the film version of the, of the, of the song? I don't remember it. The one that ends with fade. All shall fade, but is that it? Isn't there... That's only half a line. It's just all shall fade? Well, I couldn't be bothered to write a complete line. Oh, he says it twice. All shall fade, all shall fade. Okay, fine. But again, notice the change there. 
Uh, Mist and and Twilight, Cloud and Shade, Away Shall Fade. That's pretty different from All Shall Fade, All Shall Fade, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, Pippin's song, not so hopeful at the end, right? And, you know, I, I understand under the circumstances. But... I disapprove. <laughs> that is to say, I don't know. Honestly, to me, it's a classic example of the Lord of the Rings films. That is, it's really well done. It works really well. It's very powerful in the film, but it's totally missing the point of what the original was doing in the book. Um, this is the song of hope, and that the final note is hope is super important. And hope and holding on to hope is one of the things that hobbits do particularly well, right? And so to have Pippin singing a despairing song in Denethor's Hall um, is... Uh, um, I don't like it. Um, because again, it's, it just, it's, it's, it misses an important bit. There, um, and again, I'm not saying I, you know, several you're defending Pippin. I'm not saying I, I, I blame again. It works in the film. It totally works in the film. Um, but in making it work in that way, they have removed this really important element, um, which I miss when it's not there. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh, yeah. Erokeb says uh, it's strange that uh, he still precedes the song Pippin in the film by saying we have no songs for great halls and dark times and then he sings a song totally appropriate for dark times. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, with that preamble, he's setting us up for a, a, a Shire song of hope and then he doesn't give us one. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, okay, okay. Um, uh yeah, Lincoln, I agree. Lincoln says, uh, yeah, but you can't see Book Pippin taking a hopeful song and reworking it to be sad. In the, and can't, can't I see him doing that, uh, working it to be sad in the same situation you see in the film? No, no, actually, I can't see him doing that, Lincoln. I can see him doing what he does in the book, which is just not want to sing at all, right? Um, but, uh, but no, I don't see him. I mean, th- th- Pippin's role, like, yes, it's a very grim situation. But in the book... Pippin's role, even there and then, with Denethor, is he tries to maintain his hope, right? Um, don't give up, he keeps saying to Denethor. He's, he's, you know, hope on then. Uh, you know, he's the one who, uh, who is the voice of hope to Denethor. Denethor doesn't listen to him, right? But he sees how grim it is, and he tries to continue to strike the note of hope. So absolutely not, I do not think that Book Pippin would sing a depressing, despairing version of the song to Denethor. Um, he would, uh, he would, um, just remain silent if one of the cheerful, hopeful songs of the Shire would not do. Um, but anyway, okay. Goodness knows I have enough challenge here, uh, doing the, the irresponsible number of slides I have set out to try to finish chapter three tonight, which includes two poems. Oh, we're only done with the first of the poems, uh, uh, without getting into too long a discussion of the films, but I, I did want it to, I, I'd like 10 people were asking about that. So I didn't want to totally uh, ignore you. Um, and again, I, I, okay, 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 okay. Finally, w- one fast thing. Uh, la- I don't even know how to pronounce your name. Lady uh, Schmebelak. Okay. I don't understand that, but anyway, um, I totally agree with you. It's very pretty, right? And it works again. I, I, I'm not, 
saying the film is bad or does it badly. It's excellent, and it does it really well, and it works fantastically well. Um, I love it. I love it as a film, and I can lose myself in the film. But this is the problem I always have with the films. As long as I'm in film world, right, if I'm just kind of immersing myself in the story that they're telling in the film, it holds together super well, and it works really, really well. Um, When I start kind of comparing and contrasting, right, point by point, when I start making, you know, asking these kinds of questions... um, I, that's where I, I keep feeling that they tell a really a really good story really well in the films. But when I go through and compare, make a really close comparison between what Tolkien does in the book and what they do in the film, I keep coming back to how far apart those things are, how different the thing they do in the film is from what Tolkien does in the books, point by point, lots and lots and lots of places. Um, again, it's not a criticism. Films are awesome, just very different is all. Um, anyway, so I, got, I, just, I, I don't want people to think I'm harshing on the films. I love it, and I love that song. That's possibly my favorite song. Um, as the songs are executed in the film, that's one of my favorite musical moments uh, in the film. So, great. Um, just different. Just different. Um, okay, all right. And now here's me totally moving on. What about the elves? said Sam. This is, of course, where we left poor Sam last week. What about the elves? said Sam, too excited to trouble about the writer. Can't we go and see them? I love this, you know, like, so, you know, Frodo, remember Frodo has just said, he actually got off his horse and he was crawling across the ground to us. Remember this, that moment where we're looking at the Black Rider and how, how like, monstrous and totally unhuman he seems, like this this sort of hideous, dark, shadowy shape snuffling and crawling along, along the ground to them, like, totally freaky. And Sam is like, whatever, right? I totally don't care. There's elves right there. Uh, Listen, they are coming this way, said Frodo. We have only to wait. Uh, I like this little detail, right? Notice, they don't come into an elf story. The elves come into their story. All they have to do is sit there and wait, and the elves are going to come to them, right? The singing drew nearer. One clear voice rose now above the others. It was singing in the fair elven tongue, of which Frodo knew only a little, and the others knew nothing. Yet the sound, blending with the melody, seemed to shape itself in their thoughts into words which they only partly understood. Okay, uh, so first of all, um, the sing. So I, 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 one of the things that Not a Cat was asking in his uh, uh, post, which I didn't do at the beginning, was what exactly does that mean when it says uh, one clear voice rose now above the others? Does that just mean that one is singing louder, or uh, literally rising above in the sense of singing a, a sort of a higher melody or harmony um, that is tonally higher? Um, I think this is more like uh, a soloist basically coming in. You know, so they're all kind of singing in harmony, and then one clear voice rises and sings a melody above it, um, so that you have. Um, I actually think, since I'm thinking about the movie already, the scene that they do this with the elves going by. Um, and the elf sort of the elves kind of chanting as they go, you know, in sort of the complex harmonies of elf chanting. That's kind of how I hear this, right? Um, that they, um, uh, the uh, they're singing. Um, we we hear their voices. They're sort of singing and harmonizing, but it's not. There's not like a specific song that you can hear until the one voice begins, and it now sings distinctly. Uh, 
words that can be distinguished and in a melody which blends uh, with uh, uh, what the the others had already been been singing. Um, Tony, I always took that to be Gildor's voice too. It might not be. I mean, I, it's hard not to think of that because, of course, Gildor is the only one of them that we ever meet. The fact that he is the leader of them uh, uh, seems not to necessarily prove that he's the one singing, of course. It could be another one who's the chief singer. But yeah, I mean, Tony, I always imagined it was Gildor, too. Um, now, the other thing, of course, to notice, the sound blending with the mel- melody seemed to shape itself in their thought into words which they only partly understood. They hear this person who is singing in the elven tongue, which only Frodo knows a little bit of, and Sam and... Pippin are entirely ignorant of, and yet, in their thought, the sound and the music combine and shape themselves into words, which they can understand. They don't fully understand it. That is, they don't know what the elves are singing about. They don't get all the references, right? But they get the language. They hear it in the common speech, in their minds. It is translated in their minds for them, in a sense. But it, that's too clumsy, a description of what's going on. It's not like the uh, super convenient Star Trek Universal Translator, for instance, is that is going on here. Um, this is elf magic that's happening here. Um, the elf song is communicating directly to their minds. Um, by singing what they are singing, the elves are projecting their thought into the thought of the hearers. That's how it works, right? So I, it's, it's important to notice that however exactly uh, this uh, happens, right, um, it is clearly magic that's, uh, that's happening. I think it's interesting that Sam has always wanted to see elf magic. He's seen elf magic, the very first encounter, very first part of the very first encounter uh, he ever has with... Um, uh, uh, with with elves, he has experienced elf magic. Um, so let's see what they're singing. Time for our second poem. A time to make sure I don't go AFK again. Okay. Um, Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen beyond the Western Seas, O Light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees. Gilthoniel, O Elbereth, clear are thy eyes and bright thy breath. Snow White, Snow White, we sing to thee in a far land beyond the sea. Okay, first of all, what's the shape? What's the shape of the, uh, the poem, the sound shape of it? Yeah, let's see, um... Cecilia says, did the elves intend to send it to them, or was it a kind of broadcast thought? That is to say, Cecilia, that's a great question. Do they know that they're there, right? Do the elves know that the hobbits are there, and they're communicating this to them directly, or are they just going around and they're just kind of sending, so anybody who wandered by would hear them? Cecilia, I think the latter. I think the latter. Um, I think that this is the very nature of elvish singing, so that any mortal who heard them would have this communicated to their thought. That's what it means to hear elf singing. Um, 
it's the effect of elf singing. So this, the mere fact that they're singing, I think, does it. So it's not, I, I don't believe that this is a message directed to the hobbits whom they perceived in advance, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> several of you are saying that the, the Snow White reference, <laughs> Valori says the Snow White reference confused the heck out of me as a kid. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, um, and exactly, good. Uh, uh, Mary Dole says uh, this is a, a kind of what Tolkien later calls a Sunway transfer of thought. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so, so more on the more on the sound, the sound of the line. Several of you, yes, Aragorn, exactly right. Iambic tetrameter again, four beats per line. Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen beyond the Western. Queen beyond the western seas, O light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees. Same meter. Different rhyme scheme, right? So the stanzas are quatrains, four lines with alternating rhymes. So are not rhyming couplets anymore, right? Rhyming couplets you can string on for a long time, so that's why we have the, the ten line stanzas, right? Six lines of the verse, four lines of the chorus, right? In the walking song, here we have the alternating uh, rhymes, A, B, A, B. Right, queer seas here, trees, uh, but notice it doesn't stick that way. Elbereth, breath, the sea. Right, so the first stanza is A B A B, and then A A B B. In other words, we have what sounds again like a verse and a chorus. Right, except this time it's just alternating stanzas. Right, Stan- four line stanzas, alternating quatrains. Okay, so we can already begin to see the shape of that now. Uh, one point I forget who made it. One of the uh, one of my students in Tolkien's poetry last time we did that class, also known as the first time we did that class, um, uh, pointed this out, which I thought was awesome. Um, uh, that exactly, Milthalio, just what you just said. Um, that it, uh, Milthalio just asked, "Do you think it's in Hobbit meter because it's communicated to the thoughts of hobbits?" Yes. Um, are the hobbits who are writing this for us? Is it a coincidence that they hear it in iambic tetrameter, which is what they usually use for their songs? I don't think it's a coincidence, because this is not the meter in which most elf poetry is in. We'll get to see plenty of elf poetry as we go along, right? Um, and when we, uh, when we see elf poetry, we'll see it has a, there's, it has a different tendency. Um, elf poetry is in seven-beat lines. Iambic pentameter, or what is really the same thing, alternating lines of iambic tetrameter and iambic trimeter, four-beat and three-beat lines, um, alternating. But really, what is fundamentally a seven-beat unit, um, uh, this is, of course, the the rhythm of Galadriel's poem, right? I sang... uh, um, uh, I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, of leaves of gold there grew, right? I sang of wind, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. Um, seven beats. No, notice how long that line sounds, right, before we get to the rhyme. Um, that's the shape of Galadriel's singing. That's elf meter, right? Um, this is uh, this is hobbit meter. And so it's, I yeah, I actually, I do think that that's not a coincidence. I think that they are hearing it in their, uh, uh, in their own kind of idiom, because it's taking shape in their thought, right? Karita asks, what would orcs hear? Uh, I don't know. The orcs would be running scared by now, so I don't know if they would necessarily parse it into... Uh, but that would be that would be fun, actually. It'd be really interesting. Um, would it be 
beautiful and inspire longing in them that would create like hatred and disgust or would it just be yeah gravity like nails on a chalkboard i don't even know right um but uh i mean the fact that the black rider clears off as soon as he hears this suggests that what he hears in his mind is not something he likes to hear um but who knows um cool anyway all right um but let's actually now look at the um uh, the words, right? Um, first stanza, right? Especially since we notice we've got this whole like verse chorus thing going on again, right? What's the first verse about? It's about Snow White, obviously, right? So the first verse is about Snow White, and the the, the third stanza, then the second verse, obviously, would be about the seven dwarves. Just kidding. Um, uh, Snow White, Snow White. So we start off with. A repeated adjective. Okay, so she is Snow White, this lady clear. Uh, clear is a, an interesting adjective, right? Not, oh, lady fair. Or, I mean, there are lots of one-syllable adjectives we could give to the lady, right? Um, f- clear is a little unexpected, right? So that there are two things we learn about the lady that we're singing about. No. Uh, not about. What else do we learn in that first line? We learn that there's a lady. We learn two things about her. She is both snow white and she is clear. And what else? We learn that the song is addressed to her. That's what the O means. O Lady Clear shows that this is directed speech, right? They're not singing about the lady. They're singing to the lady. Okay, so that's established and then immediately reinforced. O Queen Beyond the Western Seas. And then again, O Light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees. So what is this first stanza? What is this first verse? What is the action in this first verse? Trick question. There is no action in this first verse, right? It's all an invocation. Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear. O Queen beyond the Western Seas, O Light to us that wander here amid the world of, of woven trees. It's, it's invoking her. It's describing her. It's calling out to her. Okay, so what do we learn about her? Uh, she's apparently extremely... She's associated with whiteness, right? With clarity, in some sense, right? Um, She's queen, and the queen beyond the western seas. She is a light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees. Um, That image, the world of woven trees, is really fascinating to me. Um, Woven trees suggests a canopy overhead, right? An interlaced canopy of branches. In other words, a shadowy place, right? Not necessarily like full-out Mirkwood, but of that kind, right? So it's characterizing the world that we live in as a world that is, in some ways, like the the skies are at least obscured within this world, right? But she is the light to those that wander there in amidst that world, right? So her light... 
and I think it is uh, the the uh, good. Yeah, um, uh, Alia Eru says uh, her clarity is contrasted to the confusion of the trees. Right, the 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 sort of the obscurity of the trees. Yes, Olady clear doesn't make much sense at first if um, uh, if uh, you. Um, just think of this as a physical description, right? As indeed you might from the beginning. I mean, Snow White, even if you're thinking about the fairy tale creature, right? Even if you're thinking about the Disney heroine, uh, I know you might be thinking about the, the character from, uh, from the Brothers Grimm, but come on, admit it. You're more likely to be thinking about the Disney heroine. Um, Snow White is called that because physically, like her skin was so fair, her skin was as white as snow. Right. Um, so it sounds like a physical description, right? A, a praise of her, the, her, the beauty of her complexion. Um, but then clear puts it off in a different direction, right? Oh, lady clear. Mm, okay. Maybe this is not a physical description after all. Right. And indeed her whiteness, the snow whiteness of Elbereth is not about her skin, Right? It's not about her body at all. She is the light to us that wander here, and her light is snow white and clear. Right? She may be beyond the western she may be beyond the western seas, but she is the light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees, and her light is clear and it is white. Uh, and it is what both comfort and guide to us here beneath the trees of the world. Um, oh, and Veronica, he totally knew about the Disney version of Snow White. Uh, Tolkien was very aware of that. I say very aware uh, because Snow White was released the same year as The Hobbit, and he was annoyed. by he, he saw Snow White. Um, uh, he, he hated Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, remember, he finally, you know, his book, uh, which, you know, involves a party of dwarves traveling around, gets released the same year that Disney, with his... Doc and Dopey and everybody got... He hated it. <laughs> he hated that. And all the Disney knickknacks for sale. You buy all the little dwarf... Uh, little stupid dwarf figurines and everything. Um, he got really crouchy about all that stuff. So he totally knew about it. But notice he does this anyway. He doesn't care. Right? Um, he's... Um, uh, he still uses this, you know, calls her Snow White four times in these first two stanzas. Right? Um, which I think is actually kind of um, cool. Uh, if anything, um, if anything, Veronica, I think he's actually thumbing his nose at Walt Disney <laughs> in those stances, to be perfectly obvious. Um, and you're right, Stephanie, those aren't dwarves in the film. Those are dwarfs, right? Totally, totally different. Um, but anyway, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, so back to the Lady Clear, right? Gilthonio Ah, Elbereth. Now, Cecilia, that is a fascinating observation. Cecilia notices, which is, of course, really, uh, really important, um, that uh, Elbereth's name is not translated, right? This is what is taking shape in their thought. But they still, in their own thought, hear Gilthoniel or Elbereth. That line they have no translation for, right? It does suggest they don't know Elbereth, Right? Or they certainly they don't know her by any other name, so that that's what does seem to me. I agree to be suggested by the fact that those lines are untranslatable. 
um, or untranslated anyway in the Hobbit's thoughts. Um, okay, more. Gilthoniel, O Elbereth, clear are thy eyes and bright thy breath. Snow white, snow white, we sing to thee in a far land beyond the sea. Um, so we finally get a verb, right? Our first verb. We're still invoking Elbereth, right? First line of the chorus. Clear are thy eyes and bright thy breath. We're still praising her, talking about her attributes. Now she's got another thing, right? Notice we've got physical attributes, right? Eyes and breath. But notice those get weird adjectives too. I mean, your eyes are clear, what? In the sense that she's not, you know, like her vision is not clouded, right? Her eyes aren't like, you know, she doesn't have glaucoma or something. I mean, I, I don't like, it's not a physical description again, right? And bright thy breath. That one's super weird. I mean, who says that of all the adjectives to use to describe somebody's breath? Bright would not usually really be the one, right? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Karita had just said, would Elbereth by any other name have breath as bright? Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, again, this sort of suggests, why is her breath bright? Because her breath is is, I think, the metaphor here is that the light which comes from her is, 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 it is her breath. She breathes forth light, right? That's why her breath is bright and why her eyes are clear. Uh, because again, it's the clarity of the light, uh, from her eyes. Her eyes are like the stars themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. O stars that in the sunless year with shining hand by her were sown in windy fields, now bright and clear, we see your silver blossom blown. Okay. We have a verb. This is a sentence, right? Not. It still starts with O, right? It's still an invocation. It's still, um, it's still speaking to somebody, right? But it's no longer just a description of Elbereth. Um, it starts off with O, but then after the first two lines, we actually get a subject and verb, right? So notice, whom are we invoking? The stars. The second stanza is directed to the stars. O stars, that in the sunless year with shining hand by her were sown, in windy fields, now bright and clear, we see your silver blossom blown. What's the subject and verb of this sentence? What's a subject and verb? I know that seems like a horribly pedestrian question to ask, but it's always where you start when reading poetry. Always make sure you get the syntax. You just understand, like, what is the sentence? What is the, the simple denotation of the thing being said before you do anything else? What's the subject and verb of that sentence? The first stanza, the, the third stanza, the top one. Got it, King Arthur and Aragorn. We see. We see is the subject and verb. There are other verbs, but they're insubordinate clauses. Um, we see your silver blossom blown. Hey, stars. Right? You can replace O with hey to make it a little more, a little more casual, right? Hey, stars. Uh, you know, the ones that in the sunless year with shining hand by her were sown. Yeah, yeah, you. I'm talking to you, right? We see... 
Your silver blossom blown. Where do we see it? In windy fields. How do we see it? Now bright and clear. Uh, what does it mean then? What's it about? We see. We, those of us who are here in Middle-earth, remember in the world of woven trees, right? We can see the silver blossom of those stars blown. What does it mean to say they're blossom blown? What's the image here? What's it trying to describe? What is it literally describing? What does it mean by silver blossom blown? Forget stars for a second. What's the actual physical thing that's being described? Right, uh, Hologro, you're right. Blown does also mean to, to, to open for blooms. But blossoms here. We're not talking about bloom. We're talking about flowers. We're talking about blossoms. Like tree blossoms. Right? So when you talk about a blossom being blown, what, do you prob- what is the, probably the visual image that you have in mind? Yes, yes, Philip. I think exactly that. Um, and Milthaliel, the uh, blossom petals blowing through the air. Uh, this is um, this is I uh, this time of year. I miss my old home. Uh, I um, I live in New Hampshire now. I love New Hampshire. It's still winter. We just had snow the other day. I love winter. I love snow. I missed winter so much when I lived in Delaware. Um, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm delighted to be back in New England, but there's one thing I miss about living in Delaware, and that is spring and the blossoming trees. We don't get blossoming trees up here in New England. Um, fall foliage is awesome, but I miss the spring of the Mid-Atlantic. And uh, right outside my house... Um, uh, that I lived in in Delaware, there were these two beautiful trees which just had the fullest, most incredible spread of bright pink blossoms every year. And they would, uh, the blossoms would fall. You know, the petals from the blossoms would fall for days and days. And I'll never forget the experience of mowing the grass, which, of course, I used to have to do in Delaware like every three or four days. Uh, (laughs) Land was so rich and fertile there. Um, Your lawn just grew like ridiculous, crazy. So anyway, I'd be driving my mower through this cloud of pink blossoms, falling down, you can smell the petals, and uh, it's just this incredible, incredible thing. Um... Uh, that I think is what now it's, it's also seed dispersal. Yeah. You know, you can, you can, it's possible like a dandelion fluff and stuff. Um, but the petals and, uh, seeds scattered through the air is the metaphor here. Right. Um, so in windy fields, now bright and clear, we see your silver blossom blown. Is it describing the grass? Is it describing something in the grass? I think it's describing the sky, right? Um, uh, could it refer to starlight on the grass, as someone suggested a little while back? That's possible, right? But the fundamental thing that it's saying to the stars, right? The stars which were sown in the sunless year by Elbereth, right? So the first is a is a memory of a historical event, a mythic historical event, right? She sowed the stars. 
um, in the sunless year. And those stars have borne fruit, right? Uh, and they have blossomed and spread. Is it a description of the rest of the stars, right? All of the other myriad stars that have come to Anek. Now we can see all of these stars, which have sort of spread from the, uh, the stars that she, uh, sewed with her, uh, shining hand in the sunless year. Is it like the reflection of the starlight here in middle earth? Uh, in windy fields, right? So with the uh, the grass blowing in the wind uh, and twinkling on the starlight underneath the reflection of the starlight, I think that's possible. I really actually like that reading. Who was it who said that? Um, uh... Oh, King Arthur, it was you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really like that idea because notice how it can, how it relates back to the first stanza, right? The first stanza we had, O light to, to us that wander here uh, uh, in the world of woven trees, right? So we're talking about how we in this world are in darkness, right? Not complete darkness, but we are in an obscured world where we can barely see the sky. Um, but... Um, uh, but now that world itself, the windy fields in that world, that there are open places in the world, right, where they're not overshadowed by the woven branches of trees. And in those fields, you can see down on our world the reflections of the twinkling light, you know, the, the, the sort of the images of the twinkling lights um, that were scattered by her up in the sky. I like that. I, I think that's really neat. Um, but uh, so... In any case, the third stanza relates to the first stanza in that now it is sort of talking about how um, how they are still connected with her, right? They were, it was, um, um, we got in the second stanza, we sing to thee, right? Our first subject and verb of the whole poem, right? Um, we sing to you. We are, we are invoking you. We are praising you. Um, and in the third stanza, we are observing how your work is still visible to us here, still reaches us here. We are still a part of your world, even though you're far away beyond the seas. O Elbereth Gilthoniel, we still remember, we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. Um, King Arthur, this is why I think in particular your, uh, your idea about uh, uh, starlight on the grasses seems to me to be right, uh, because the final image in the poem is the starlight reflected on the ocean, right? Uh, so if the starlight uh, sort of twinkling on the, uh, the, uh, the windy fields, right, on the, 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 the grass blowing in the wind, uh, that's like the mortal land parallel, to the starlight twinkling on the western seas, the seas that we can't get to, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Veronica, the, uh, the, the, the stars are the first thing that the newborn elves see when they awake in Middle-earth. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay, so... But what's, this, <clears throat> what's the subject in verb? Of the of the fourth stanza, we get another one, three whole verbs, three all three all subjects and verbs in this uh, in this uh, poem. What's the third one? Uh, 
We remember. Got it. Got it. Exactly. We still remember. Wait, who? Who remembers? Uh, we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees. Yeah, us. We're the ones who are remembering. What do we remember? Thy starlight on the western seas. That's what we remember. Right? So notice, what's the shape of the poem? You notice this? Three subjects and verbs. What are they? We sing. We see. We remember. Right? Interestingly, it's a song to Elberth, but it's a song about them. Right? Um, which is kind of cool. We sing. We see. We remember. We still remember. Right? Um, that's cool. Right? That's really, that's really neat. Um, so it's about their keeping her. It's, so it's a song of praise, which sort of points out how they keep her and her works in remembrance. Um, we still remember thy starlight on the Western Sea. Um, yeah, Grimm is asking, uh, uh, he says, I know we passed it, but uh, could wind blow, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the wind stuff have something to do with, uh, with Manway? Well, it seems to me to be slightly beyond coincidence, right? Not really a strong reference, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it certainly, yeah. With the wind, that's kind of hard to avoid once you once you go there, right? Though it is interesting to me that we don't get the same, um, we don't get any clear reference to Manway in this. It's not really a song about Manway, right? Um, yes, Tony. Um, Tony says it stands to reason that we the ones singing are the Noldor as opposed to the dark elves who never met Varda yeah Tony and also by the way have never seen her starlight on the western seas Um, that's exactly why uh, Frodo can tell these are high elves right you can tell these are Noldor Um, and you can see clearly from the context of the poem right um, we still remember thy starlight on the western seas. Um, the dark elves, of course, have never met Elbereth. But even if they've heard of Elbereth, um, they don't remember the starlight on the western seas. They've never seen the western seas before. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the overall shape, I think, is very elvish, right? We sing, we see, we remember. Um, those three kind of realities of the elvish life in Middle-earth. One, they're making. Uh, They are... Elves are artists. Elves are makers, right? It's who they are. It's what they do, especially the Noldor, of course, but all elves, really. Um, So, first is their song and their singing. Second, uh, they're seeing they're actually interacting with... um, with the world around them, right? What do they perceive? And of course, what they perceive is the, 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 the reflection and the connection between their world and, uh, the world of Elbereth. And then, uh, we remember. And that of course is very, very elvish as well, right? We still remember we who dwell. So we are here, we are in exile. We're still doing the seeing and we're seeing the connections, but we remember, um, that's the main, the other main thing that elves do, as as is to 
to hold on to things, to remember things. Uh, they are stable. The world around them changes, and they change comparatively little. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of neat stuff that we so we can we get a lot of insight really into the mentality, not just of the elvish mentality, but the high elvish mentality here. Um, it really kind of shows us a lot as we uh, um, uh, as we look carefully at the poem. This is why you never skip the poems, and this is also why it's totally okay to spend the entire class, which was meant to be the last class on Chapter 3, talking about two of the songs, um, and not really getting to any of the other rest of the chapter that we were supposed to be talking about. Uh, uh, if you look super carefully, you can see at the top of the screen that we are on page 7 of 21 of my slides. So, uh, there's that. Um, yeah, so there it is. Um, I think we should probably... <laughs> I should probably just call it quits here, in fact. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, Tarlanio, exactly. Um, uh, Gildar, we'll, um, we'll, 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 we'll see you next week. There's plenty to talk about with Gildar. Um, let me, let me, tr yes, exactly. Irindus is calling for one more week. Uh, you'll get it. You'll get it. Um, uh, it's it's fine. That's fine. Um, I'm never going to apologize for spending lots of time on the poetry. And actually, can I say, uh, this has been especially fun for me. I've spent some time talking about the walking song before. I think I got a clearer sense of the shape of the Elbereth poem this time through than I've ever had before. That was really great. Um, I, I learned a, a, a huge amount here uh, in uh, in this session about that poem. So, uh, yeah, good. All right. Um, let's, uh, yes, Tony, you're right. Gildor's not getting any older, so he'll still be here next week. <laughs> Very good. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, well, I heard that, uh, uh, I heard that, that Jeff, that Maid of Lions from Lotro is predicting that the, this class isn't going to end until the ninth age. So, uh, he's probably right. Okay. So ne next week we are absolutely finishing chapter three. It's going to be awesome. Um, one thing I want to commend to you. Reread the end, right, from right after the Alberteth song through the end of the chapter. It's like four or five entire pages. Uh, so reread that for next week and pay special attention to the landscape description. I want to look at the landscape description and think about what it shows us and how it sets up uh, the scenes, how the elves and what they do are connected with... Uh, with the landscape description that we get. Um, so, uh, and we'll talk about the stars and the constellations and it's going to be great. So that's what we're going to do next week. We're absolutely finishing chapter three next week. It's going to be awesome. And now field trip time, uh, on the Rover random theme. Let us do our field trip. Also, don't forget that next week is at 3 p.m. That's right. Don't forget. Yes, 3 p.m. next week. Uh, uh, Europe-friendly time next week. Uh, so, yeah, that'll be good. <laughs> yeah. You're getting laughed at in game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so unsurprised. Okay. So, where we are going tonight, we're actually going to all... Um, group up in oat barton that's so right we have some um we have some hunters including myself 
who can port people uh, either via Tunadir or I, for example, have my campsite fire uh, there. So anybody that needs uh, a fellowship uh, should come up to where I'm at. And then the hunters also who have volunteered to help can come up here. Um, and then any of you that might have, uh, you can get to Oat Barton by Swift Horse if you go to Tinnadir. So if you have that capability, you can do that. And uh, let's see, what am I doing here? I'm going to come over here. And do we have other hunters? Who else do we have? Oh, Tyruya, Tyruya, Tyruya is also a hunter. Yeah, good, 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 good. Okay, gosh, you guys are good. Look at you. Look at you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start making fellowships. And if I need to, I can come back. So if you don't end up in a fellowship before I go, don't worry. Um, I will come back and get people who are uh, uh, left over. Sorry, I can't yeah, talk I'm, to you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and port over there. I'll wait for people. I'll meet people in Oat Barton. Okay. And I'll start just kind of talking about okay. Oat Barton. And also, uh, for those of you that need to, Ranty is also inviting people around him. And uh, Milthalio, at level 23, you're actually going to be seriously under-level. This is about a level 30 area. Um, so you are going to be in danger of being killed by the things there, but you should be able to receive a certain degree of protection. So, Sanswinda is also up on the stage if anybody needs her. If anybody isn't in a fellowship yet and needs a port, so you can... You can uh, get around her. I'm going to go ahead and port the folks I have, and then I will come back. I'm just and, looking up uh, at the stars of Elbereth here. Aha! It's Remoroth, the netted stars! <laughs> there they are! Oh, look! And over here... Wait! Wait! Borgil! I see it! There it is! There's Borgil right there! Excellent. So Red Borgil. Those of you that just came, go on down into town, and I'm sure you'll find Narnian. And I'm going to go back to. I'm going to drop fellowship and go back and see if there's anybody else that needs a lift. Yeah, going down the hill, Lauren, Sarah, down into town, and you should be able to find them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the uh, uh, Minova Gore with his shining belt is has not risen yet. He's still below the horizon. But since the uh, time proceeds relatively quickly here in the Lotro world, we should keep an eye out for him, because we'll probably see him come up, and then we should all burst into song. That might be hard to coordinate, but we should make an effort. I'm just kidding about that, by the way. But still, it's, you know... <laughs> I, I could tell Trish was worried there for a second. Like, are we? We're not actually gonna have to sing. Right? Oh, there he is! There he is! I see his belt. His shining belt. His shining belt is just above the horizon. So somewhere, elves are bursting into song right now. See, there he is. And notice so, I'm facing. You're already in a. I'm facing Sorry. east, so. Yep, yep. That is, I, I was too low down to see the belt. So that's not Borgil. Where's Borgil? Borgil's behind the tree from where I am. I gotta, I gotta go over here to see uh, Borgil. There we go. I think there it is, right above the tree. I think that's Borgil. 
Borgil is Aldebaran. If anybody else needs to fellow up, come on over where I'm at. Okay, I, I see people disappearing. This is good. Okay. Oh, yeah, there's there's the knitted stars again. So, yeah, I think... I think that's Borgil right there, Red Borgil. Yeah, no, you can tell. The other one I was looking at was Rigel, was not Aldebaran. That's Rigel. So this is Aldebaran here. So that will be, yeah, it's just blinking in that uh, grass there. Yep, yep, that's Borgil. Cool. No, Borgil is Aldebaran, Tony. Yeah. Which is a red giant, and, and it's one of the one of the two stars. Uh, Aldebaran and Betelgeuse are really the two um, that look red, visibly red, uh, in the sky. So yeah, and from the from the position, you can see. I'll show you. I have a whole slide for this. We just didn't get to it this week, so we'll totally do it next week. Don't worry about it. But I love the fact that they did the constellation, especially those three constellations. And here we can see them just rising above the horizon. It's pretty cool. Okay, but I'm sorry. Wait, this is not what I came here to talk about. All right. Hey, lots of people made it here. So is everybody here, Trish? Um, I'm bringing a few people. Hold on just a second. I think... Um, Okay, so I I think we're, we've got one last group coming, and then we'll we'll um we'll be good. And we've already got some people waiting at the glassblower's camp as well. Okay, cool, good. All right, well, uh, let's make one quick stop because over here in Oatbarton, so Oatbarton is on the map. Um, and actually, Trish, I'm getting an echo from your mic. It's probably not coming oh, okay. through very loudly, but I can. Let me um, turn down my. Let me see yeah. if I can help. Cool. This might help. Let's right. See if that helps. Yeah, I think that's better. Okay, good. Okay. Thank you. All right, so here in Oatbarton, um, this is a, it's a, it's on the map. It never gets mentioned. Nothing ever happens here, but it's like north of the north. If you see where we are, we're up in Inuminus, actually. Um, the or the you know the Evendim map. Um, it's right north of the Greenfields, which is where it is on uh, Tolkien's maps. Uh, so this is again not something that they invented. Um, but so Oatbarton is a is sort of the northernmost area. Uh, of the show, it's like the northern edge uh, of the North Farthing. Um, and if you remember, let's see, where's um, where's our friend? Oh, he's over here. Uh, there's one famous person up here um, whom we've already talked about, and that's uh, here. Uh, there's uh, 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 there here he is. Hal Hal Gamgee. Um. How fast, right? This is the one from whom Sam hears rumors about giants and walking trees and, and things. He's, he's the one who saw the walking tree up in the North Farthing. Um, uh, this is the cousin Hal whom uh, 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 Ted Sandyman thinks is always seeing things, and sometimes he sees things that ain't there, right? Um, so, of course, he lives way up here in the North Farthing, which is uh, which seems appropriate, so that's cool. But anyway, we're going to ride further north. Today, we are following up on the line of thinking that we uh, were pursuing last week, 
um, when looking at the brigands, uh, the increasing brigand presence in the south farthing, or the closest they get to the south farthing in the Lotro world, um, ways in which they are filling out the Shire using the story that we're told or that we learn later is developing in the Shire, and of course paving the way for the scouring of the Shire at the end. There's another thing we learn about that we don't learn about it until the return of the king. We learn about it from Farmer Cotton uh, uh, eventually, but we can see that they haven't forgotten it here in Lotro. So if we if we ride north through this beautiful countryside full of wolves and the occasional and inevitable giant spider, uh, if you are level like 20-ish or lower, you'll want to stay with the family here. Uh <laughs> Because the things around here will kill you fairly easily. Um, <laughs> Grim says that uh, the hobbit that just walked through our group t- uh, t- uh, told Hal uh, that there have been too many strangers around lately. Yeah, exactly. So true, isn't it? Especially tonight. Okay. A lovely day, isn't it? It's a lovely day. It absolutely is. Um, okay, so. I'm just introducing myself to the stable master as I always do. Now let's go down here to the glass blowers camp. So we got some artisan hobbits who live down here, and of course one of them is super important. This one here. Might I have a word with you? This is Ronald Dwale, and I. Uh, Ronald Dwale is the in-game representative of Tolkien himself. Uh, Ronald, of course, is the name that Tolkien went by. It was his second name, John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. Um, and Ronald is what his family and... and uh, uh, well, not his friends. His friends called him uh, Tollers and various other nicknames. But, uh, but his family called him Ronald. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so Ronald Dwale, he is uh, the fourth of the companions uh, from The Burden Baby. Um, Jack Lewiston and uh, and the others down there, the other the other inkling representatives. But of course, so you remember we we saw those when we toured the the Burden Baby a couple months back. Um, but we noticed there was no Tolkien representative, and I mentioned he was somewhere else. And here he is. This is him, Ronald Dwale. So let's look at the. I want to do the quest that he gives us here. Uh, and he says, It must have been the beginning of fall. I was with my son on the banks of the Brandywine, enjoying the sun, a fine meal, and a full pipe, when he sat and played with his favorite toy, a piece of lead fashioned into a small dog by the side of the river. My boy was very fond of this toy, but when it came time to leave, it wasn't anywhere to be found. I tried to console him with one of my stories. I created quite a wonderful tale about the toy's whereabouts, but if you're heading that way, could you perhaps search for it? The toy has to be somewhere in the Barandolf, the sand marshes north and east of Dwelling. I've heard that strange burrowing creatures have since inhabited the area. There's a good chance one of them could have swallowed it up, thinking it to be food. Um, uh, the, the reference here, of course, and we will needless to say accept this, and I, I want to I go over and try to see if we can find the lost dog. Again, if you are, like, level 25 or lower, don't wander alone. You might, you probably won't be able to get the quest, but um, you can follow along. Um, so, okay, so yes, we're headed out anywhere uh, to the Brandalf, so we're going to go around here. I want to I want to skirt this uh, camp. Just kind of head straight out towards the river there. Um, 
the story, of course, this is a this is a biographical story from Tolkien. The reference is to the story that Tolkien wrote called Rover, called Roverandom. Um, uh, it start exactly as uh, Ronald Dwale says on a trip that he and his um, uh, that he and his family took at the seaside. Uh, so okay, so I think I've got to, we've got to kill a bunch of these uh, these sand burrowers, right? Okay, which I think is going to be hard to do with everybody doing them. I don't think I'm going to be able to actually accomplish the quest since there's really not much around here to be killed since everybody is killing them. This is kind of hard to do in a mob, admittedly, this quest. Because I, I believe we have to... We have to I've, I've got to kill one in order to find it. So... Uh, if everybody could not kill all of them and let me do at least one of them, that'd be handy. You, you could try following up with just a couple of people. Right, too, that would help. Would yeah, increase your chance. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, let's see. We can we can wander a bit to the north here too. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, I don't know the biting sand flies are not what I'm interested in. Yeah. Hey, look, I tapped in on one. Hooray. <laughs> I got stunned? Seriously? <laughs> Yay, I found it. Hooray. Okay, good. I, I managed to tap in on one of these burrowing creatures. Now, by the way, even the burrowing cre creatures are an inside rover random joke. Um, so the full story went like this. Um... Again, so his his son lost his toy dog, and they went back and they looked for the toy dog, and they couldn't find it. So Tolkien did, just as Ronald said, he tried to console his son, who was very upset about losing his little toy-led dog, who was like a sitting-up-and-begging dog. Uh, he tried to console him by writing a story about him. So he writes a story about this dog who gets, who's a real dog in truth, but a magician turns him, he bites the pants of a magician uh, who gets mad and turns the dog into a little toy, uh, into a little lead dog. Um, and then the little lead dog is purchased and given to, uh, to, the, to, a, to a small boy who does lose him in the sand on the beach. Um, but he loses him in the sand on the beach. Uh, he, he can't find him again because he encounters another magician, and the other magician is buried in the sand, and only his ears are sticking up, and they look like sticks. Um, so, and I'm not, I don't remember, I don't think it's Christopher, I think it's Michael who had the 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 dog. I'm not 100% sure. I don't remember which of the, of the boys it was, but I think it was Michael, not Christopher, who had the dog. Um, but anyway, he, um, uh, so he so in in the story the dog is then animated by another uh, wizard who is hiding in the sand who is burrowing in the sand, um, and that's why he can't they can't find the dog because he's taken in by the by the wizard uh, into the sand. So again they don't exactly have a uh, uh, a wizard buried in the sand uh, animating the dog, um, but then of course he he has many many adventures. Um, uh, so uh, he um, uh, he. 
he gets, you know, he he ends up going to the moon. He gets uh, flown to the moon on the back of a seagull, and then meets uh, meets the moon dog, who's also named Rover. And uh, and he meets the man in the moon, who is a very powerful magician. And he's given wings, becomes a winged dog, and uh, and then he comes back to Earth, and he goes down under the ocean and becomes a sea dog for a while. And then he was there's all these incredible adventures. Uh, including like the waking, he accidentally wakes uh, like the great sea dragon, who's almost like um, uh, almost like the 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 world serpent, right? Who uh, almost causes a complete catastrophe. Um, he's always getting into these wild scrapes. Is Roverandom the dog? Um, anyway, so um, uh, so. Uh, so that's where the story of Roverandom comes from. It's the consolation story. In the end, of course, the dog is reunited uh, to the boy, though in real dog form. Um, so anyway, let's let's head back uh, to uh, Ronald Dwayne, and we'll turn this one in, uh, and then we'll look at some of the other uh, some of the other quests here in the area to uh, to learn a little bit more about dwelling. Um, so. Anyway, so it's 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 a wonderful nod to Rover Random that they do here to find the lost dog uh, buried in the sand. Um, so I'll head back up to uh, Mr. Dwale. I see I've come the very long way around here, but that's okay. Uh, it's the scenic route. Actually, a lovely view of the valley. And the stars. Wait. See, I'm in star mode now. Aha. Uh-huh. Yep. See, so um, uh, Minovagar with his shining belt has, um, has risen now a little bit, right? Now, there, you can see it really clearly. Minovagar with his shining belt, uh, Red Borgil, and the netted stars. Remrath. In fact, that's such a clear view. Uh, I really need to take a screenshot of that. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, excellent, yeah. So I will use this as a visual aid next week. Okay, sorry. So I'm glad I went the wrong way around because I got that awesome view of the stars. And now I'm going to fall down take the direct route down to Ronald Dwayne. Okay, sorry. And most of you guys took, of course, the sensible route. Okay, Mr. Dwayne. Is there something I can do for you? I was able to find it. You are so welcome. And he gives you a mathem. Please stay a moment. Okay. Uh, Alright. He also needs some assistance. Okay, so um, from a fellow lover of the written word, because uh, I'm a lore master, right? So, of course, I, I would hope that a lore master of your reputation would be interested in assisting me. Not long ago, I seemed to have misplaced a very important leaf of paper while I was walking with my notes. This paper contains the beginning lines of a story I planned on writing for my children uh, that has been conjuring in my head for some time now. Now that most of the town has been sold off, I have not been able to search for my paper. 
So there's this slip of paper that has the first few lines. And of course, you know what the first few lines are, right? This is clearly in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, right? Uh, is the first, the famous first few lines. Um, but, but the problem is half this town has been sold to somebody, and it's hard for them to get in there. He'd rewrite it, but he can't recall the exact wording, and he really wants to, to find it. And, of course, that's just what Tolkien would do. He would want to make sure he had the former draft uh, so that he could do that, um, so he could have that word for word. Um, all right, so let's see. We need to... Right, so we just need to go over here. We need to find this lost uh, paper somewhere uh, down here in the town, Right. So yeah, we don't get that much of a of an indicator of where to go here. Um, so what happened in this town? I wonder. Well, hang on a second. Actually, I want to collect the other quest before I go down into the town, because the other quest is going to send me down into the town too. So I want to talk to what's his name over here. No, could I take a you. moment of your time? You, uh, Bob Hillbrow. That Hob Hillbrow. You're the one I want to talk to. Might I speak with you a moment? Yeah, sure. Okay, so he, he's talking about the plight of dwelling. Okay, so this town has never been a rich town, right? Um, but uh, many of the best glass blowers in the Shire are found in these holes, right? So, okay, so it's an artisan's town, again. Uh, uh, his dad, your dad before you was a glass blower, right? Best in the north and east farthings, and you learn the trade from him. So we have this traditional small time, you know, small time artisan kind of community up here in dwelling. But recently, things have taken a turn for the worse, right? What with all the wild creatures about, folk are plain afraid of the north bounds nowadays, right? The bounders have never been so busy, we're told in chapter one of the, in, in, in well, chapter two, excuse me, in chapter two, right? It's, uh, uh, it's, it's getting increasingly dangerous around the edges of the Shire. Uh, a hobbit out of the West Farthing sent letters... Wait, sorry. Uh, most of the folk have moved away and sold off their property after business stopped. So first, you've got the people invading from... You know, the dangerous things invading from outside, and so more people moving away. At which point, uh, the, a lot of people wanted to sell. And somebody, a hobbit out of the West Farthing, sent letters and contracts up this way, purchasing holes and land until he bought up almost the whole town. That's when all the trouble began. So, who is the hobbit out of the West Farthing? Who's purchasing holes and land all over the place? Lotho Pimple, right? Lotho Pimple, exactly. Um, I used to get my tools for glass blowing uh, repaired by a dear old friend who lived in Dwelling, but he moved away not a week ago. Uh, and then, uh, so I'm supposed to go in and see if he left those, the tools in his shop. So let's go in and explore dwelling. We'll look for the lost page of, uh, of the, the, you know, the, the, the very rare first draft manuscript of the Hobbit. And we will also look for the glass blowing tools of, um, our new friend, uh, Hob Hillbrow there. Um, because we see what's happened to dwelling now since uh, some hobbit or other out of the west farthing has bought up all the land, is that now there are all these men about, right? The town has been taken over and converted into a crude camp uh, with all of these human ruffians in it, right? Um, up 
right now here near the edge. So we can see still cute little hobbit places, right? And yet uh, huge bonfires in the middle. We see these sort of fortifications that have been thrown up. Uh, the Look at the, the door of this nice little hobbit hole is all all cracked and broken open, right? And the house itself now uh, showing, you know, like where like it's been beaten up. Some of these are still being lived in, right? And notice their names. These things are called the chief's workers, right? They've been hired by the chief, of course. Of course, Lotho Pimple himself, who is the chief. We see him already beginning to be, to set himself up as the chief, right? Um, he's going to see what else are these? The chief's stalkers. So you see that half of them are workers, uh, and the other half are explicitly brigands, right? Uh, and here's the captain, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, oh, wait, hang on a second. There's something here a satchel of glass blowing tools. Hooray! I found them. Okay. I haven't found the lost page, though. Do you have to kill brigands to find the lost page? If so, I'm going to have some trouble with that, I think. Again, unless we fellow up. No, I think they're on the ground somewhere. Are they on, on the, the ground somewhere? Yeah. Okay. Alright. Where are they? I don't remember where they are. I've done this quest before, but I don't recall. You just you, you do you so you just find it kicking around on the ground? I didn't see it when I went through the first time, but there are folks jumping down below. I have a feeling that's where it is. Ah, good call. If you look over down below. I knew I could trust helpful folks. <laughs> Aha. Oh look, they have found it. Okay. So lost leaf of paper. I just ran right past it the first time. Okay. I was too busy looking at the houses to notice the the leaf of paper lying on the ground. Okay, excellent. Okay, so again, so uh, I think again, I think that this is really fun. You know how we see um, because again, we have the opportunity to see more of the uh, to see more of the country, right? Um, when um, uh, in, to see more of the country in Lotro than we see um, in. Uh, in the books, right? Um, in the books, we only see things after... Look at how the gardens have been wrecked. Oh, it's Perlina Gamgee's residence. And she had a really nice garden here, but look, it's been stuff has been strewn all over the place and wrecked. It's so sad to see a garden in this state, even before we came traipsing all over it, as Sam would say. Um, or as the gaffer would say, really. Anyway, so... Um, uh, again... In the books, when we come back to the Shire at the end and we hear about from Farmer Cotton, you know, what's been going on, we only really come to see the ending of things. Here in Lotra, they, they show us further what's around the edges, the places we never get to see and, and, uh, and visit. Uh, in um, Where am I headed here? Am I headed the right direction? I'm headed the wrong direction, aren't I? Yeah, I'm headed over here. This is where I want to go. Um, anyway, so yeah... Um, uh, this is why I shouldn't talk and try to navigate at the same time, because I'm really not very good at doing two things at once. Um, uh, so again, I love how they set the stage, right? We can see the initial stages. We know Farmer Cotton mentioned how Lotho, um, it turned out, had been very had been privately buying up 
land all over the place, right? Adding to the land that he got from his dad in the West Farthing. Hey, no problem. We found your manuscript. Might I have a word with you? So now he wants us to go down to the Burden Baby and uh, talk to his friends at the inn. Okay. One last task for you. Yep. So we're supposed to go tell him that uh, he's not going to make it. Um, so he wants to get started on his new book. Now that he has, now that he has the leaf. But I haven't an inkling how I should reach my friends in time to tell them of my absence. Ha! 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 Very good. Uh, so go quickly and visit Jack Lewiston uh, and uh, uh, tell him no. Tell him that uh, he won't be making it. Hilarious. Uh, and of course you get uh, you get Ronald Dwell's pipe. Uh, one of my favorite little uh, little little artifacts there. Um, it's been a foul day, it has. I'm sorry to hear that, Hob. Might I speak with you a moment? Okay, so now we're supposed to go down and ensure, ensure that her home is safe, which of course we've already seen it isn't. Um, and I should uh, I should stop before it gets too late. Uh, uh, we don't have time to do the whole quest chain. Um, I, I, I recommend this quest chain. If you carry on doing this, then uh, the, the three of them here decide to take legal action. And so they have Ronald Dwell compose a, a strongly worded letter that they're going to bring down to the foreman of the chief's men down there uh, to try to get him to uh, push off and, and not, uh, you know, not, not, not uh, do these kinds of terrible things uh, here in dwelling anymore. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very good. It's, it's very, it's very amusing. It's very well done. Um, so anyway, so I'm going to, let's, let's see if we can head back to Mickledelvin. Can we get a, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do some swift travel from here. If we can, can we can go from here to Oatbarton and then from Oatbarton. Can we go to Mickledelvin from there? Let's see how quickly we can stable, if we can stable master our way back. Hello there. Well, I can go to Oatbarton. So let's go to Oatbarton and see where we can get. Okay. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's, uh, I, I love the fun that they have with this. And you can see that, so the dual uh, uh, kind of service that they do here. Let's see. A what lovely day, isn't it? Brock and Borings. Well, I don't have to do, I guess. Um, yeah, I, so, I, you know, both, you know, the having uh, uh, the Tolkien character here uh, who sends us on the rover random quest to begin with but then after that uh, you know the way that he gets involved in this other um, uh, in this other quest line and uh, which is of course uh, all, all tied in with yeah we can't get there very directly but alright I'll take some slow horses back um, Tinnadier then Mickledelving ah good call Finn good call I'm going to do that Wait, no, I can't go to Tinnadier. Never mind. I don't. Ha- I've not opened Tinnadier in uh, Narnia, so yeah, I think it's probably easiest for those of you who do have it. That's definitely faster. Um. Hello. Hey, Trish, you want to do a hunter port? We could do that to head back to Mickledelvin. Sure, no problem. Actually. I'm in Mickle Delving, but I will let me bring you here. Okay. Uh, let's see, where are you? Okay. Oh, oh it says you have a I, pending fellowship invitation. I did, yeah, I just got invited by another uh, hunter, I think, who's here. Okay. Yeah, if they're there if they're right there with you, then they can port you for sure. Yeah, let's see. Yes. Yes, Kathleen Silverbrook is bringing me down. Thank Wonderful. you. Very good. Excellent. Hunters are so handy. 
I've never played a hunter, but I always appreciate having them around. <laughs> Thank you very the much. The only way to get invited to parties is because we can port people places. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's head over to the Burden Baby. And uh, tell the rest of Ronald Dwell's friends that he doesn't have an inkling when he'll be able to come to the next meeting. Okay. So we got to go back around to the rabbit room. Being accompanied by cats and sheep and everybody else. And of course, here's Jack Lewiston. Just a moment. Message from Ronald. So let's look at their look at their text here. That's a shame. I was hoping Ronald had finished his discourse on my book, The Place of the Bear. This is Carlo Williams, of course. Did you hear that, Owen? Right, Ronald won't be making it. Oh, that's too bad. I was going to read from the silver so from uh, what his book, uh, uh, the Silvered Horn. Right, pity he won't hear it. It's not like Ronald to miss our meetings. I trust he is working hard on his story and not getting caught up in any silly games. <laughs> what do you need? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look at that. I just uh, did it again, I guess. That's cool. Get to hear the dialogue again. Yeah, I love it. Coming all this way to tell them about that, his absence. Hope this book is as good as he claims. Yeah. And of course, Jack is carrying a pipe. Here's uh, Owen over here reading a book, right? Where Jack and uh, uh, Carlo Williams are are in 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 deep conversation, which of course is exactly what uh, would be happening. Uh yeah, yeah. Charles Williams and Lewis uh, loved to discuss and debate. And Lewis always had his pipe. Um, uh, in fact, Jack Hooper tells stories about how, especially in his later years, he used to continuously set himself on fire. Uh, you know, he said that Lewis uh, owned almost no jackets that didn't have holes burned through the pockets because he had the very bad habit of putting his lit pipe back in his pocket, uh, which would then set fire to his clothes. Um, it's a, a good time. So yes, you see he has a nice, uh, nice glowing lit pipe there. All right. Uh, very good. Well, thank you, everybody. I think we'll, uh, uh, we'll leave off here at the Burden Baby tonight. Next week, again, uh, Brandywine server. Uh, and 3 p.m. Don't forget, Europe-friendly time next week, 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and we will finish, we'll get to the elves, we'll talk about constellations, and we'll get through um, the um, uh, the end of Chapter 3 next time. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining me again on Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now! <laughs> <laughs>